Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. This episode is brought to you by audible.com. As you are no doubt aware, Audible is the internet's leading provider of audiobooks. So, at any time, you can go to my website, worldwar2podcast.net, click on the Audible link, and sign up for a free 30-day trial membership. For doing this, you get a free audiobook and a 30% discount on additional purchases for as long as you keep the membership. Of course, you can cancel at any time and keep the free audiobook. Or you can continue on and select from one of their convenient memberships. This time, I thought I would change things up a bit and have you recommend something to me. I do have over 40 books listed on my Audible sources on my website, but if any of you know of a good book that I haven't talked about yet, and you know it's on Audible, send me an email and I will gladly add it to the list. But if anyone can tell me of a book, uh, it doesn't have to be on Audible, um, about the early war in North Africa, since we're about to head there soon, I would really appreciate it. So you can send that to the Ray42Harris at yahoo.com. And for the at least 25 people who have emailed me who plan on meeting me somewhere during the tour, um, just to let you know, to be quite honest, uh, that can't happen unless we get enough people signed up. So um, if you are thinking about it, if you have any questions, send me an email. I'll be happy to take care of your questions. I'll send it on to the tour company if I have to. But I would really like to see as many of you um, as I possibly can. And thank you for listening to The History of World War II, Episode 52, Moves on the Chessboard. By the evening of August 18th, some things were becoming apparent to certain people. For Keith Park, doubting system, years in the making of response and defense, was working. He just needed more pilots. For Gehring, it seemed that no matter how many reports he read about their fighters delivering crippling blows to fighter command. Still more British fighters were always waiting for his bombers. Deep in his heart, Gehring had to be regretting his choices, made years ago, of quantity over a more varied bomber fleet. The dive bombers, though accurate and second to none in their part of the Blitzkrieg tactics, could simply not deliver the loads necessary to obliterate British airfields. That was supposed to be the job of the Ju-88s, but in 1939, Udet and Gehring decided to give it dive bombing capabilities, which meant an overhaul, which meant delays. 
So by the time of the battle over the channel, there were not enough of them to destroy fighter command's facilities on their own. And if anyone in Berlin or northern France tried to blame the Messerschmitts, as Goering tried now, that was a hollow charge. The fighters were no longer fighting, but escorting. Something very different. And while it was only a month ago that Gehring wanted the fighters free to hunt, 30 days ago must have seemed like another war. Perhaps night bombing was the answer. But German bombers trying to hit specific targets at night were no more accurate than the British version. Those pilots did their best and then hoped for the best. Perhaps this inaccuracy could be made up for with massive bombing formations. At least that way, something of military value would be hit. But this was all just speculation. Gehring never went to admit defeat or failure, knew something had to change, or frankly improve, and decided that the best course was to stick to the basics, which meant focusing on the conditions needed for sea line. Fighter command must be brought low. Everything else would either fall into place or be someone else's responsibility. Gehring had spent August 18th, the hardest day, promoting and then chastising Mulders and Gallen. They and other young fighter pilots were now to be the commodores of their respective Geschwalder, or fighter groups, as of the 22nd. They would each now be in charge of the equivalent of nine squadrons. Gehring called them back on the 19th, and although there was more finger-pointing and blame, and this was simply shifting blame away from himself, some critical decisions were made. He was clearly upset by the losses of bombers. This he blamed on the fighters. But before the pilots could raise a protest, Gehring went on by saying that Hitler's number 17 directive stated that the Luftwaffe must retain enough aircraft to support sea line. So the men under these new leaders were to be well cared for. Orders were to be clear, and if there was any confusion, it was better not to proceed, but for everyone to turn around. The aircraft, in this case meaning the dive bombers, were to be conserved as well. Recovering from the chastisement, the new Commodores started putting forward their own ideas about how to best protect the bombers. Some only valued sweeps, some a combination of sweeps and escorts. But Gehring, easing up on the reins a bit, told each one to make up his own mind. What he cared about were the results. Normally, Gehring would have never given up this much control, but he trusted these fiery young new Commodores. And he would also make sure that their previous positions were filled by men of merit and experience, not rank or connections. The commander-in-chief of the Luftwaffe then got down to brass tacks. He wanted smaller bomber formations sent up, but increased numbers of fighters with each bomber group. And only ME-109s were to be used, unless the range dictated that 110s were needed. In essence, he was removing the dive bombers from the battle. Not the JU-88s, because they could carry large loads and fly as fast as a hurricane. The Stukas, however, with their speed of only 160 miles per hour, was getting themselves slaughtered. No wonder the RAF pilots called it a Stuka party 
when engaging them. We've already mentioned that Garing didn't have enough of the larger JU-88s to continue the attacks on the airfields as before, but he had enough of them to use his bait to force British fighters into the air. Then, all was up to his ME fighters. An objective view would say that Garing had just come full circle. But there was a change. He wasn't focusing on airfields and RDF stations as before. He wanted the British fighters forced up and then shot down. As for Bomber Command and the aircraft industry, they would only be hit if the situation was very favorable or if there were clouds for the bombers to use to sneak in and then out of. But now the policy was for Britain's production and repair facilities to be the main target of Luftwaffe 3's bombers and they were to attack at night. Again, accuracy might be off, but his bombers would make it home. There was little talk besides destroying fighter command, whether in the air or on the ground. And that was because, frankly, Gehring's intelligence was light on what airfields were fighter commands or bomber commands or belonged to naval aircraft. His intelligence agency's lack of information also hurt Gehring's plannings by being way off on British aircraft numbers, production, and their number of pilots. This also contributed to mistakes being made in their selection of targets. Manston was hit the most often, but it never stopped being used. However, it was only a refueling station, not that Kesselring figured that out. No, the proper information would have revealed that the only way to hurt fighter command, besides attacking their RDF towers daily, was by hitting their sector stations, and so damaging their command and control systems. But the three sector stations south of London, Tangmere, Biggin Hill, and Kenley, had each been hit only once. Biggin Hill was still 100% operational, Tangmere had lost power, but only for a few hours, and Kenley, the hardest hit, had lost its power for a total of two hours. So the British pilots were flying numerous sorties and exhausted by it, but the overall system was intact and remained able to respond to threats from the south. But now came the revolutionary changes, changes that only someone with Garing's rank could make. Sperla of Luflot III in the northwest of France was to transfer the bulk of his fighters to Kesselring of Luflot II, centered around Calais. Kesselring's job was simple, to use the additional fighters to destroy fighter command in the southeast corner of Britain, and so pave the way for sea line. Sperla and Luftflot V in Norway were to now focus in the night bombing of airfields and aircraft production. So the relocation to new bases and the next few days of bad weather led to a lull in the fighting. Of course, all this moving around meant that when the weather cleared and everyone was in place, the brunt of the battle would be on Park and Eleven Group. It would be, in essence, Kesselring versus Park. During all this, Dowling, on his side of the channel, made his own moves. Exhaustion had set in on his pilots, who not only had to fly several sorties a day, but then had to be debriefed. This was essential 
if Fighter Command was going to have any sense of the larger picture and learn from their mistakes. The first thing Downing did was to move 111 and 601 squadrons from their more southern airfields to just north of London. They had lost the most men on Eagle Day, and it clearly showed in their faces. 64 Squadron was then moved from Kenley to Lincoln Field of 12 Group. To replace them was 616 Squadron that had dealt so effectively with Luftlot 5 from Norway on the 15th. And finally, 266 Squadron was removed only after two weeks, granted two weeks of hell, from the front line to Wittering. Now that rust was possible for some of his men, it was time to be more proactive. Downing, who envisioned this system years ago, saw the good and the bad of it. It was working, but it was also starting to crack under the strain. So, against the advice of some, which never meant much to him, he added four squadrons to his order of battle. 302 Squadron, made up of Polish pilots who came over after Poland fell, were activated, as was 310 Squadron, made up of Czech pilots. They were placed north of London, but it wasn't their flying skills that worried Downing and Fighter Command. It was simply their language skills. Confusion is the last thing needed in high-speed aerial combat. Two other squadrons were activated as well. The first was the number one squadron of the Royal Canadian Air Force. The second were the uh, exuberant men of the Polish 303 squadron. They were barely restrained by being allowed to patrol airfields. Again, it was the language barrier only holding them back. Eleven Group's Air Vice Marshal Keith Park was busy as well. He had noticed the raids were coming in more inland and wanted to take advantage of it. From now on, interceptions were to be made over land and not over the channel. He needed his men safe and to be able to return to their squadrons quickly. It was not uncommon for a pilot to be shot down only to be sent up again that same day, if uninjured. Park also directed that only the minimal amount of fighters were to engage and occupy the measurements. The majority of the fighters were to attack the bombers. Unknowingly, this worked against Gehring's new plans. Also, the bombers were to be targeted before, during, and after their bomb run, but again, were not to be pursued once over the channel. And since Park didn't know that Gehring was going to focus on his fighters, rather than his airfields. The group commander wanted the airfields themselves patrolled when threatened, once the Germans crossed the coastline. However, to free up more of his pilots, he wanted the three sector stations north of London to be covered by 12 groups fighters. Park could see for himself that Dowding's response system, built around radar, was working. The men were exhausted beyond belief but the system was sound. The only fault was in Fighter Command's tactics, and these, most of Levin Group, had already abandoned. This podcast could not exist without the help of sponsors like Yahoo Finance. When it comes to your financial future, you think you've done it all. 
You've saved, you've researched, you've invested all that you can. Now you need to take those investments to the next level by using what every financial great uses, Yahoo Finance. I've stressed this in my podcast about command and control, which is exactly what Yahoo Finance is. You can see all your investments and retirement accounts in one place. You can consolidate your views from multiple accounts into one hub and access the expert analysis you need to tend to your entire portfolio with confidence. Yahoo Finance has been around for more than 25 years, and they've worked things out. You've got the tools you need right at your fingertips. I open up my Yahoo Finance, and within seconds, I can see how my stocks and investments are doing. And basically, investing, it's all about growth. And in order to grow, you need to know what's going on. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. During the 1930s, many minds went into developing tactics for the ever-faster fighter aircraft that would be used in the next war. And because the fighters' range was limited, and Britain did not expect to fight France in the next war, it stood to reason that their greatest threat would be from bombers. So Britain's fighters were expecting their main and possibly only job to be stopping the enemy's bombers before crossing the channel. But here is where British culture, military and civilian, which honors discipline and proper form above all else, because that's how battles are won and a successful life is forged, affected their ability to predict how future air wars would be fought. That same disciplined point of view dominated their flying formations, with orderly, tight groups flying together and looking rather smart in photos. As if air combat, when a plane could go in practically any direction, would adhere to the six basic patterns of attack, so put down in the training manual of 1938. In it, each pattern or plan dictated exactly how unescorted bombers were to be attacked. The standard RAF fighter formation was originally the upside-down V-shape VIC of three aircraft. So each squadron had two flights, called A and B, and each one of those were made up of two VICs of six fighters altogether. So Flight A had two VICs, one called Red and one called Yellow, and Flight B had one VIC called Blue and the other Green. Altogether, a squadron had 12 planes with a few for spares and about 18 or so pilots, the rest ready to take over if something happened to the first 12. What Finder Command was to find out early in the air war with Germany, although it didn't accept it at first, was that their preset attacks were overly complicated and the fighters were extremely vulnerable when attempting to get into the correct position for whatever plan was called for. And this was mostly because their plans didn't factor in escorts flying with the enemy bombers. Park saw flaws in this before the outbreak of war, but to no avail. Initiative was forbidden. Before the Battle of Britain, a pilot could be correct and dead or insubordinate 
and hopefully alive. Amazingly, some units were still taught the six basic attack plans until early 1941. Park realized, and he wasn't the only one, that the most effective way to disrupt bomber formations was by flying right at them. The lead bomber was not only the navigator, but he told the other planes when to drop their bombs. So if that aircraft could be disrupted, it affected their entire sortie. During the battle, another effective form of attack was to come in from behind because it gave the fighters a longer time to fire, and most German bombers were poorly protected from that area. But to counter this, the Germans had learned in Spain that shooting at a plane behind them meant that their bullets would end up hitting the engine of the pursuing fighter. The pilot might survive to fight another day, but only if he survived the crash landing a successful shot would produce. But the British pilots were to find out how much damage a German bomber could take before being forced down. Dorniers were the easiest to take down, followed by the Heinkels, but their 600 pounds of armor plating meant that there was a significant difference between the two. That left the JU-88s as the toughest of them all. With them, it was best to go directly after the pilot. As the Spitfire came to represent the defiant British that summer, the Junkers JU-87 Stuka came to symbolize the Blitzkrieg. With its massive numbers, it seemed to be everywhere, and its unique wing shape, which caused terror for those who saw it, but most notably, its screeching sirens that wailed at its intended victims. Of course, this meant nothing to someone in another plane who couldn't hear it. In the ME-109, the Germans had the ultimate hunter, but there were never enough of them. To assist them were the ME-110s, but with their poor acceleration and sluggish maneuverability, they would find themselves unable to joust with the Hurricane and the Spitfire. Still, the ME-109, with an experienced pilot inside, had only known success in the war so far, and all that experience was now heading to the Channel. It's interesting to note that the Germans emphasized fighting in an airplane, while the British focused on flying the aircraft to fight with it. The Germans had started out in Spain with a Vic like the British, but soon found that there was no room to maneuver. Also, the tight, smart-looking formations meant that scanning behind them was almost impossible. They had to concentrate too much on not ramming into each other. The British thought that they'd fix this with a weaver, but we have already seen how ineffectual that could be. Werner Mulders of the Luftwaffe must be given a lot of credit for creating tactics that are still used today. Bringing it down to its essentials, fighters needed to shoot down other aircraft while not being shot down themselves. So, Mulders switched from the tight Vic formations to two sets of two, a hunter and his wingman in each set. It's true that the front man would be seen as the hero, and his score would quickly add up, but this was only possible because someone else had the sole job of watching his back. By mid-August, Eleven Group had learned much of this, but had to pay a hefty price first. Aircraft had to be spread out, which gave them room to maneuver and to react, as well as being able to cover more space around them.
Bouncing or coming down on an enemy from sunward was always preferred, but became harder as each side learned how to fight using aircraft. As the British fighter pilots started flying and fighting, like their German counterparts, the outcome of the air battles came back to the planes, the men inside them, and of course, radar. And radar, or more precisely, its application, was paying off in an unpredicted way. Park had become very good at using radar to bring in his fighters after the German fighter sweeps had gone by, but before the bombers approached a target. And this finesse meant that radar could never be allowed to go offline for any serious amount of time. But now that the Stukas were being held back by Gehring, the threat to his towers, and there were ten of them, from the Isle of Wight to the Thames Estuary, was significantly reduced. Still, Park was going to be in for a surprise when the reinforced Kessel Ring moved against him on the 24th. Gary was taking more and more of a direct hand in this battle, and he needed to be. Time was running out, and Sea Lion's deadline was rushing toward them all. August 19th to the 23rd saw a sharply reduced number of raids than of late, due to reasons already mentioned. The 19th saw many single raids cross the channel, but Fighter Command learned not to disregard these single predators. Using cloud cover, they could pose a serious threat to convoys or to aircraft on the ground. For example, an oil depot in Pembroke, South Wales, was hit by a lone JU-88, and the fire raged for days. On the next day, the 20th, when Prime Minister Churchill would give his speech to the Commons about how the population of Great Britain owed a debt to the fighter pilots, whether they knew it or not, the Bristol Bay was hit again, along with Manston and West Malling. But what got the War Cabinet's attention that day, like it had every other time it happened, was when many of the barrage balloons over Dover were shot down. Did this mean that the Germans were finally coming? No, but the day ended with convoys in the west and southeast being successfully attacked by ME-110s. August 21st saw rain and clouds, but still, German fighters came over again that morning to shoot down more barrage balloons over Dover. This made most wonder again, except for Churchill. The Prime Minister kept an eye on those barges in northern France and Holland. If they started moving, then he knew the invasion was on. By the 21st, pilots on both sides were beyond all physical and mental exhaustion. This is easy to say, but impossible to imagine. Some tried to put the never-ending sorties out of their mind by playing cards or reading, but others simply gave up on relaxing or sleeping in any real sense. And though they had youth on their side, their limits were physical and real and had been breached. On a tragic note, the armed German merchant vessel Vitter sank the British vessel Anglo-Saxon, but then it fired its machine guns at the lifeboats, trying to save their crewmates, and 34 men were killed. Vitter's captain, Rukit Schell, would be convicted as a war criminal for this after the war. He would die in jail 
1948. By August 22nd, the fighters from Luftflot 3 had received their orders to make for their new bases near Calais and begin operations as a part of Luftflot 2. But strong winds limited the number of sorties that day. Still, shipping in the channel was attacked, as was Manston and Dover. But on orders from Park, if only fighters were plotted, no RAF fighters were to respond. This stung the pride of the British pilots, but they also gladly took the time off. However, the 22nd will go down as the first time the bombs were dropped, however marginally, within the London Civil Defense Area, as Harrow was hit at 3.30 a.m. In response, that night, three swordfish torpedo bombers from 814 Squadron bombed the barges along the Dutch coast. August 23rd's weather of clouds and rain limited Luftflot 2's planned sorties. Still, many small or single raiders crossed over using either fighters to strafe or JU-88s in opportunistic raids. The bombings and attacks were widespread over all parts of Great Britain, besides the far north. By August 24th, the German fighters would be in place and ready to start their new assignments along the new guidelines, and the weather would cooperate with them, at least in the south. And during the days leading up to the morning of the 24th, the number of wrecked planes, ships, and lives lost had continued to grow. From the 19th to the 23rd, Fighter Command had lost 11 aircraft, the Luftwaffe, 31. Total reported losses to date were now 259 and 516, respectively. Also in that time period, at least 20 Allied or non-access ships had been sunk. Along with them, 122 crew members had died. The bombing and strafing from the Luftwaffe, though reduced over the last five days, continued to affect Fighter Command's pilot situation, as there were at least 30 RAF personnel deaths, with another 218 service men and women wounded. The night bombing continued to terrorize the civilians as hundreds of homes and other buildings were destroyed, and at least 120 people died with another 415 wounded. But as staggering as these losses were on both sides of the conflict, and the numbers only grow if you consider the families and loved ones of the casualties, these numbers were about to climb beyond all believability. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. Uh, before I give you Churchill's speech from the 20th, I just wanted to take a moment and thank a few people for their donations. Again, um, it really does help by reference material. There are tens of thousands of books out there, and I just get as many as I can. Um, so first, I'd like to thank William A. from Newtown Abbey, UK. He writes me all the time. He's always on Facebook, and I just wanted to thank him for everything, his donation and all his contributions. Um, so, William, thank you very much. Um, then there's Malcolm C. from Charnwood, Australia, who I believe has donated before. So if you have, Malcolm, again, thank you. Simon N. from Cambridge, UK. Uh, Donald W. from Austin, Texas, who I think is a repeat 
donator, and Richard D. from Richmond Hill, Ontario, Canada, and Robert P. from Torrance, California. And if this is the Robert I'm thinking of, he's donated several times. So again, Robert, Bulb, thank you very much. And then Alan B. from Lynn, Massachusetts, um, donated as I was doing the final edit. So Alan, thank you. And yes, I was able to squeeze you in. Rather more than a quarter of a year, Mr. Speaker, has passed since the new government came into power in this country. What a cataract of disaster has poured out upon us since then. The trustful Dutch overwhelmed, their beloved and respected sovereign driven into exile. The peaceful city of Rotterdam, the scene of a massacre as hideous and brutal as anything in the Thirty Years' War. Belgium invaded and beaten down. Our own fine expeditionary force cut off and almost captured, escaping as it seemed only by a miracle and with the loss of all its equipment. Our ally France out, Italy in against us, all France in the power of the enemy, all its arsenals and vast masses of military material converted or convertible to the enemy's use, a puppet government set up at Vichy which may at any moment be forced to become our foe, the whole western seaboard of Europe, from the North Cape to the Spanish frontier, in German hands. All the ports, all the airfields, on this immense front, employed against us as potential springboards of invasion. Moreover, sir, the German air power, numerically so far outstripping ours, has been brought so close to our island that what we used to dread greatly has come to pass. And the hostile bombers not only reach our shores in a few minutes and from many directions, but can be escorted by their fighting aircraft. Why, sir, if we had been confronted at the beginning of May with such a prospect, it would have seemed incredible that at the end of a period of horror and disaster, or at this point in a period of horror and disaster, we should stand erect, sure of ourselves, masters of our fate, and with the conviction of final victory, burning unquenchable in our hearts. Few would have believed we could survive. None would have believed that we should today not only feel stronger, but should actually be stronger than we have ever been before. Let us... The great air battle, which has been in progress over this island for the last few weeks, has recently attained a high intensity. It is too soon to attempt to assign limits either to its scale or to its duration. We must certainly expect that greater efforts will be made by the enemy than any he has put forth. Hostile airfields are still being developed in France and the Low Countries, and the movement of squadrons and material for attacking us is still proceeding. It is quite plain, sir, that Herr Hitler could not admit defeat in an air attack on Great Britain without sustaining most serious injury. If, after all his boastings and blood-curdling threats and lurid accounts trumpeted round the world of the damage he had inflicted, of the vast numbers of our air force he has shot down, so he says, 
with so little laughter himself, if after tales of the panic-stricken British crushed in their holes, cursing the plutocratic parliament which has led them to such a plight, if after all this his whole air onslaught were forced after a while tamely to peter out, the Führer's reputation for veracity of statement might be seriously impugned. We may be sure, therefore, that he will continue as long as he has the strength to do so and as long as any preoccupation he may have in respect of the Russian Air Force allow him to do so. On the other hand, the conditions and course of the fighting have so far been favorable to us. I told the House two months ago that whereas in France our fighter aircraft were wont to inflict a loss of two or three to one upon the Germans, and in the fighting at Dunkirk, which was a kind of no-man's land, a loss of about three or four to one, we expected that in an attack on this island we should achieve a larger ratio. This had certainly come true. It must also be remembered that all the enemy machines and pilots which are shot down over our island or over the seas which surround it are either destroyed or captured. Whereas a considerable proportion of our machines and also of our pilots are saved and soon again in many cases come into action. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire and indeed throughout the world except in the abodes of the guilty, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. All our hearts go out to the fighter pilots, whose brilliant actions we see with our own eyes day after day. But we must never forget that all the time, night after night, month after month, our bomber squadrons travel far into Germany, find their targets in the darkness by the highest navigational skill, aim their attacks, often under the heaviest fire, often with serious loss, with deliberate careful discrimination, and inflict shattering blows upon the whole of the technical and war-making structure of the Nazi power. On no part of the Royal Air Force does the weight of the war fall more heavily than on the daylight bombers, who will play an invaluable part in the case of invasion, and whose unflinching zeal it has been necessary, in the meanwhile, on numerous occasions, to restrain. I hope, indeed I pray, that we shall not be found unworthy of our victory if after toil and tribulation it is granted to us. For the rest, we have to gain the victory. That is our task. There is, however, one direction in which we can see a little more clearly ahead. We have to think not only for ourselves, but for the lasting security of the cause and principles for which we are fighting and of the long future of the British Commonwealth of Nations. Some months ago, we came to the conclusion that the interests of the United States and of the British Empire both required that the United States should have facilities 
for the naval and air defense of the Western Hemisphere against the attack of a Nazi power which might have acquired temporary but lengthy control of a large part of Western Europe and its formidable resources. We had therefore decided spontaneously and without being asked or offered any inducement to inform the government of the United States that we would be glad to place such defense facilities at their disposal by leasing suitable sites in our transatlantic possessions for their greater security against the unmeasured dangers of the future. The principle of association of interests for common purposes between Great Britain and the United States had developed even before the war. Various agreements had been reached about certain small islands in the Pacific Ocean which had become important at our fueling points. In all this line of thought, we found ourselves in very close harmony with the government of Canada. Presently, we learned that anxiety was also felt in the United States about the air and naval defense of the Atlantic seaboard. And President Roosevelt has recently made it clear that he would like to discuss with us and with the Dominion of Canada and with Newfoundland, the development of American naval and air facilities in Newfoundland and in the West Indies. There is, of course, no question of any transference of sovereignty. That has never been suggested, or of any action being taken without the consent or against the wishes of the various colonies concerned. But for our own part, His Majesty's government are entirely willing to accord defense facilities to the United States on a 99 years leasehold basis. And we feel sure that our interests no less than theirs and the interests of the colonies themselves and of Canada and Newfoundland will be served thereby. Sir, these are important steps. Undoubtedly this process means that these two great organizations of the English-speaking democracies the British Empire and the United States will have to be somewhat mixed up together in some of their affairs for mutual and general advantage. For my own part, looking out upon the future, I do not view the process with any misgivings. I could not stop it if I wished. No one can stop it. Like the Mississippi, it just keeps rolling along. Let it roll, let it roll on, full flood, inexorable, irresistible, benignant, to broader lands and better days.